the low Mickey show. Lindsay Boylan is not only a community leader, she is most recently the former candidate for Manhattan Borough President of New York City. And she is an urban planner. She previously served as Deputy Secretary for Economic Development uh, and Housing for the State of New York under Governor Cuomo, who she's not in great, uh, <laughs> doesn't have a great relationship with now. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, from my perspective, we love her because Lindsay secured millions of dollars for underfunded public housing led the state's efforts to provide assistance for the people of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, and she pushed to enact the $15 minimum wage and paid family leave policy for New Yorkers in New York State. She previously served on community boards five and seven in Manhattan as well. There she is, live from a car in an undisclosed location. There you go. (laughs) You're looking like you're well-rested. I mean, it's only a little over a week and a half since election day, and, you know, obviously the election will never end, Uh, but you look well-rested. So that's yeah. always a good sign. Good, it's good, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'm just really excited to have you on because you've obviously been in the city and, and I know that post-election is always a really hard time because like you're, you're still kind of like working through all that stuff, which yep. I personally understand. But so before we even get to what's going on with the Board of Elections, I just want to say thank you for stepping up courageously, running and challenging an establishment that has, on all ends, has been, as we're seeing, we're living through right now, has been, uh, has taken the worst from Tammany Hall and kept it as a legacy in New York, I think is probably the safest way to say it. It's terrible for all of us, right? It's really bad. Yeah. Largest city in the country, supposedly this progressive uh, city, when everybody thought the, the IDC was like, you know, unheard of, you know, then, then let's like zoom in on the Board of Elections. So, you know, I, I understand that, like, obviously you've just run, but whatever you're able to say, feel free to say it. Uh, I don't think people are holding back much right now yeah. based on this debacle. But uh, for our audience, let me just run through some stuff because I think this is this is important. Uh, the Board of Elections, of course, is an appointed board, unlike many other states. And as we've discussed on the show before, there's a lot of nepotism. There are a lot of family members and friends and distant relatives of elected officials and former elected officials. Were you surprised by just how bad they handled ring choice voting? You know, what is it like that everyone's saying, I'd like to see the Democratic Party at my funeral so they can let me down one last time, like into my grave or whatever it is. Um, No, I'm not surprised. Uh, I have maybe the unique position of having observed as a candidate this this round a year ago before our CV and just the unusual nature of county absentee ballots was such a production operationally. Even if you had people who were the best at what they did, who were well-resourced and well-prepared, that would have been a nightmare. And I think for me, More than anything else, it says how uninterested our Democratic leaders are in people actually voting, you know, and having their voices be heard. Because at the end of the day, the best outcome for the Democratic machine in New York is if their people come out and no one else. They're not really interested in making it easy and they're not really interested in making the system less opaque. You know, I think there are a lot. I mean, we lost people who work at the Board of Elections during the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the the everyday person taking my petitions, working real hard under really tough conditions. 
the people who are to blame are the leaders, both at the Board of Elections and our elected leaders, including people like Jay Jacobs, people like the mayor in this case, people like Jay the Jacobs governor. Is the chair of the Democratic Party in this Yeah, I mean, they, th- these people, these leaders are the ones who are supposed to anticipate major changes. And could we have had a more significant change than ranked choice voting? And I think in some respects... It doesn't benefit the machine and um, the Democratic Party to have these things go well. I mean, kind of like the MTA, the governor gets to blame someone else, even though behind the scenes he controls it. And I think this is very much the same. So maybe I'm a little bit more relaxed now because I know I'm not one of the top two gentlemen who've been in this game for a long time and who are leading. So I'm just, you know, wanting this to work out and, and not have people cross messaging that this is somehow voter suppression like Eric Adams. But it's a, it's a, it's a mess. And anything that disenfranchises and, or not disenfranchises, but disenchants New Yorkers on our voting process and gives it a sense of integrity is really bad. So it sucks. <laughs> really There's bad. Been, it's interesting because there is this, this, this thing that's happening in this city and, and nationwide. I think post Trump, probably earlier, probably from Occupy on, but, but let's just say for like a, a more, a less progressive, more, uh, normie Democratic voter, if I can yeah. just say it that way. I think yeah. a lot of people are waking up to the fact that we need reform in this state and in this city. They were surprised when they saw the turnout rates and, you know, just, just people become more active. But simultaneously, there's this establishment that's been relying on kind of keeping a fairly democratic and, and, and honestly, a, a fairly progressive state. I think if you were to poll most Democrats, in the state about where they stand on key issues, issues, yes. they would say, yeah, I'm for Medicare for all. Yeah, I'm for, you know, funding yes. the MTA. Yeah, I am for fully funding public schools. Yeah, I'm for public spaces for people. All about funding public housing. I mean, I think this, for the most part, I mean, anti-development. I don't want oligarchs buying up our city. I think a lot of New Yorkers, most New Yorkers, most who are Democrats, would be in favor of these things. But the establishment in New York has, which is, of course, in the bed of, of, of real estate and the police unions up until maybe like a minute ago for some of them, you know, they've relied on keeping everybody blind to all this. And so like post-Trump in particular, people are like, yeah, voting reform sounds great. So they dismantled the IDC and they got all these voting reforms and the establishment, it's like the the two things are pushing up against each other. I mean, I always laugh when all these, what you call it, normie Democrats and everyone carries around copies of the power broker, like the only person who's controlled a state and, and influenced people's lives is Robert Moses. We've got We've got a few people like we've got a few men like that right now. And I think the governor is the most significant. What he's doing at the World Trade Center site with luxury development, all of the machinations around how we're going to spend federal aid. Just as an aside, people shouldn't have to live their lives in the election process in order for their government to work for them. But I think people like Andrew Cuomo and even Mayor de Blasio benefit from people not engaging as much. And, you know, you go door knocking as a candidate and you realize some buildings had polling sites in them purely so that they could reelect their leaders, like Shelly Silver, for instance, downtown. And all of the way things are set up is not democratic. And I just think it's really embarrassing that we listen to women or people like Stacey Abrams and say, yes, what's happening there is so wrong. And then we have our own state which will redraw the election lines post-census, and it will absolutely be done to preserve the establishment and who sits in those offices now. And I think we're seeing it in real time 
in some ways, I think it's a false narrative to blame the everyday worker at the Board of Elections. I mean, these people are working hard. They've lost their colleagues, like so many New Yorkers. And like so many examples, leaders, mostly old white men on high, do something to make a system fail and then find a way to blame the average worker, which I think happens even with our some of our failed union leaders. Like, I don't want to go into it, but look who was at the governor's million dollar fundraising dinner last week. It was it was party leadership, people like Keith Wright, who's supposed to be the Democratic Party leader for, for Manhattan, people, you know, who are supposed to be serving their workers and their community, but instead they're, you know, sucking on the seat of power, frankly. Governor Cuomo had a fundraiser last week where he raised a million dollars off of $10,000 tickets. And he could still sell 100, you know, 100 plus tickets uh, because he still controls the budget, which is already done with. So it's very interesting that they're investing them now. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the thing about Shelly Silver. So just for, for audience, we not even New Yorkers who are, are New York. I know. I sometimes I go to. Thank you. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm a geek. I used to live in that building where that polling site was on Grand Street. So you mentioned it and I was like, oh my God. It was very convenient for me to go vote. I'll just say that. But yes. Yeah. Um, I was a neighbor of, so Jolly Silver was the former Speaker of the Assembly not too long ago, but he'd been in office for, I don't know, his whole life. But he was one of the remaining, if not the last remnant of Tammany Hall. Very young. I mean, I think his like mentor was from Tammany Hall. And he ran the Assembly and finally, through a slate of, of a slew of corruption scandals, including the Speaker and, and the leader of the Senate, and many others, you know, was was actually sentenced to jail and has kind of been like, you know, going back and forth in his old age. Uh, but a Democrat. And and I think that's this is the important part is like it's it's not that we don't, you know, not all Democrats obviously are corrupt. And it's not that that the state is full of Democrats that are corrupt. There is just this legacy of the worst habits of Tammany Hall of the power in a state where we should fundamentally be far more progressive but yes. because we have, you know, Wall Street and and real estate, two major interests yes. in the city, there's this this tendency, and I, I think like what's very strange about right now, and I'm I'm curious where you see this going is, I feel like yes, there's a progressive shift, but simultaneously yeah. there's an effort to, oh my God, it's coming, we're gonna have another progressive era, which came out of New York. How do we facilitate the same power structures within the progressive yeah. movement to keep them at bay because you know, do you get what I'm saying? Like, oh, I totally do. Going I mean, that way. I totally, I totally do. And I think it's enormously frustrating. And I think probably the majority of the people in, in my borough president's race call themselves progressive. But I would say that the way that they've been able to move through the power structure is anything but what, in my view, progressive ideals are about. If you simply, you have to get in line. I mean, this is great to me. The fall of Scott Stringer in some respect, that's a machine in Manhattan. The Jerry Nadler, Scott Stringer machine has controlled and adjudicated who gets to be in and out. Corey Johnson a little bit too. Who gets to... Can you, can you explain that who, a little bit more? What, what that, yeah, who they I mean, are and what you, that means? You can't, you can't even go to a political club. You will be booed out of the room if you don't get in line with Jerry Nadler, uh, which of course I have a penchant for not getting in line with old white men in power. But, you know, Scott Stringer worked for Jerry Nadler. And interestingly enough, if you look at most of the people that that machine has promoted, it's mostly older white men, with the exception, I think, of, of women like Linda Rosenthal, who I believe dated Scott Stringer for a number of years. And 
This is not to debase any of the important work that people do, but if you are in the political sphere in Manhattan, for example, you know that the only way that you can safely move forward is by getting in line with those people. You won't even be welcome to political clubs that support them. You won't be offered interviews for important unions that are behind them. And this creates a system that makes it very hard to go your own way if you want to be successful. I'm quite certain that if I had decided to, you know, not open my mouth, not be the person that I am, I would have had a much easier road to getting to, you know, office. But if you have to trade everything that you're trying to do in order to get somewhere, you're not getting anywhere good. And I think that is, we view these fights as kind of procedural and inside baseball. My husband, you know, who does not like politics, I think a lot of New Yorkers don't say, oh, that's, that's in the weeds. But the reality is, if we want to go back to the Robert, Robert Moses example, he controlled you know, a dozen or so agencies and people didn't want to have to live their lives thinking about how things were controlled by a small number of hands and how that was influenced by Albany, which is not in New York City, but the power structure is in Albany. And it's a way to obfuscate how power is adjudicated, who gets access to it, and how it is bought. And particularly right now in the city of New York, that is the real big concern, I think, is, is, is significant real estate developers and development. They control the process for everything. And I think even a lot of the reason why the building trades are standing by the governor is because they want their workers to get access to new infrastructure work and new construction. You can't really blame them, but it means that people have to participate in a corrupt system. And that has to end. And I think I have been heartened by organizations that choose to buck that trend. I do hold hope, particularly for things like ranked choice voting and for particularly women, women of color who are speaking out and who are challenging that system. It's still a marathon and you're still sucking wind the whole way. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I, mean, <laughs> I don't need to oh, tell Oh, I know. Real estate came after me. Yes. <laughs> no doubt. They were like, oh, we don't know who went. Oh, I do. <laughs> Maybe the publications that attacked me were all funded by real estate developers. Oh, shocker. Scott Reckler. <laughs> Scott Reckler. Let's look at that example. He's been put on a bunch of boards, a bunch of important metro region decision-making boards mm-hmm. that control billions of dollars in investment. He is a very significant real estate developer. And he's also the chair of the 92nd Street Y. So in every possible way, way, this is a person who is influencing the decisions that are made by our city. And he's not an elected. He is not accountable to our people. And I don't really blame him because he's doing things for his own interest and his perception of what he thinks is best. But we didn't elect him. We didn't choose him. Yeah. And, and, but because and, and the governor wants on... to continue to elevate him. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I, I think you're right because the MTA board, for instance, the MTA, of course, is our, our subway, our our busing system is our public transit system in New York City, and it is extraordinarily underfunded. And if you have spent two minutes in New York, you know very well, the trains don't run on time, they barely run, the signals are outdated, a million different things. The most famous, you know, subway-like renovator had quit in frustration, which doesn't leave us a lot of hope about fixing it. And he was amazing. He was one of the great <laughs> public servants that we had, trained at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but that's, that's a great, I mean, it's, if, if he can't fix it based on, the, frankly, the political dynamics, which I think he was pretty clear about, you have an MTA board that houses real estate developers. You have to sit there and say to yourself, why are they on a transportation board? And what are they, which, you know, there were subway stops that were shut down for two, three years that happened to be in the, the fastest growing neighborhoods in New York. 
where of course working people needed to get to their homes. And then they decided, you know, for many reasons to move out because they couldn't, who comes in and buys up those properties, real estate developers simultaneously. Here's the thing that really just, just irks me because you do see a progressive movement that's decidedly not taking some real estate money, right? There's clever ways they can still take it through other forms, but I understand the building trades wanting to protect their workers. I understand this partnership they're having with developers. But developers right now, the majority of this housing prior to the pandemic was being sold to the same people that we're all criticizing Donald Trump for being in line with. You know, nobody wants to touch this because it's dangerous. You know, there's there's empty cash cow buildings throughout the city that are driving up the costs of of living in those neighborhoods. People don't live there. There's bank accounts for oligarchs and who knows what kind of money coming in. And this is oh, a yeah. big issue because especially in Manhattan, I mean, you're like the only person I know that lives in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yes. Yes. It's, yeah, oh, and I'll give you another yeah. example. I mean, even people, and, and I have a lot of great colleagues from state service. They're not all like the governor. I think most of them are afraid of the governor, but there are a lot of really good public servants. The governor was trying to elevate Jana Lieber to really run, in essence, the MTA. His last, you know, his last full-time job, I believe, was at Silverstein. He's a great guy but on a personal level, but you have people and Silverstein Properties is one of the big players right now in pushing forth uh, luxury development at world the World Trade Center site. And I'm part of a coalition that is saying, no, we don't need any more luxury development at this time. If anything, we need 100% affordable and deeply affordable, baking into the cake, the bullshit, excuse me, I'm not allowed to say that, um, mandatory inclusionary housing, which does 25, 35% of affordable, which is not affordable, doesn't do anything for anyone. And you continue to elevate people whose only experience or broad experience is how to develop this city for the benefit of luxury, you know, condos and, and, and apartments and Hudson Yards. And that's the only model they know. So even if they had the best of intentions, that's what you're going to get. And I think what we see all over this borough and all over this city is people who say, wait a second, you were saying this was going to get me affordable housing give me the opportunity to stay in my community and instead I'm being displaced or I am the human sensibility of a streetscape that makes this an interesting place to live or a vital place to live is being destroyed by inhumane, massive, you know, like Star Trek style development at Hudson Yards, which is so inhospitable. I mean, you look up at, I live just South of it and you look up and you're like, where is New York? You know, what does this have to do with the people of New York? It looks nothing like New York. New Yorkers don't, I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel like New York. There's no small businesses. I mean, no. this also obviously changes even in these like manufactured mini cities within Manhattan, primarily in some, I mean, I live in Long Island City. It's happening in Brooklyn too, of course. But there are these new communities that look like, like you said, they're like Star Trek, you know, they're, they're glass neighborhoods where there's like three small businesses, three businesses in those neighborhoods, but they drive up the cost of living throughout the borough. Yes. And Small businesses, of course, can't afford to maintain themselves. And obviously, you know, if you do live in public housing in New York, which is still not affordable, you're forced to go to these, you know, larger businesses that are much yes. more expensive. I mean, I used to make the joke that like a cup of coffee is five fifty in New York, not because of $15 minimum wage. It's because the rent is so high yes. because everything gets That's inflated. True. Well, and by the way, I mean, you, you run into a great point, whether we're talking about Fulton houses or Amsterdam houses, anywhere in Manhattan. And that's really my experience at this point. It's represented everywhere. But, you know, the extremes, I think, are really especially in Manhattan. What I hear about is they closed my grocery store. 
where am I supposed to shop? I can't afford to shop at Whole Foods. So you know what you end up having? You have people shopping at their local deli and hopefully they take EBT. Hopefully, you know, all of these things add up to make it impossible for most people to live. And I think the most pointed example of this is if you look at Amsterdam houses, which is like on the lower upper west side, right? Right behind Lincoln Center, right? Just south of LaGuardia High School, right amidst to its west, all of the kind of land giveaway development that happened along with the John Jay College, you know, zoning changes and and land passing over. You basically suffocated a bunch of residents living in NYCHA. There's nowhere for them to shop. There's nowhere for them to go. And you haven't invested in their quality of life and the buildings themselves. I mean, I walked in there door knocking and I saw more than one sign next to people's apartments that said lead contamination, don't breathe here, basically. Like, what is someone supposed to do with that? You know, all of this combines. And that's why a progressive movement is so important. And I think it's important to talk about these procedural things like ranked choice voting, like how we make it accessible for people to vote, like how districts get drawn, because that in itself is a a huge indicator and determinant of actual progressive opportunity for change. Because I can tell you, it's not easy to break through. No matter how many times you do it, I mean, we don't give up. And I want to say that message. I'm not anywhere near giving up. I've learned a lot and I have a lot more comrades, I would say, in the fight. But it's not easy and it shouldn't be so hard. It's an important point you make because when ranked choice voting came through, and maybe I'm just a jaded former candidate of New York City, uh, as I'm sure you know that feeling, I was suspicious at first because it simultaneously happened with an eight to one matching fund system. And my immediate sense was, oh, great. Every consultant, every every political establishment group is going to come in and throw three or four candidates and make a lot of money off of them with the opportunity of potentially pushing their candidate forward and pushing out any sorts of Well, in states like Maine and other in Australia, where there are cleaner democratic processes, make it easier for people to rise up that are not part of the establishment. It becomes a tool for back deal, you know, backroom deals. So, but what you said about like more people turning out is obviously would shift this. If it was not about getting your key contingency or your constituency, excuse me, to vote, and it was about getting all New York Democrats to vote and it wasn't such low right. turnout, we wouldn't be in this situation. Well, and also, let's say if we had same-day registration, if we didn't have closed primaries, I mean, that's right. the kind of things that would really, I think, move the needle too. Nothing is perfect for all time, right? We do have to continuously work on things. But what I will say is, I'm very glad for the public matching system. I think ultimately that and ranked choice voting will be really important changes. But I'll say a few things. I mean, I got in the race seven or eight months ago. Everyone else really had been in the race for at least a year. The two men who lead the race, you know, had over a million dollars each, a million and a half, including public matching funds, and they flooded people's mailboxes. I mean, how environmentally sound is it that we're using this paper and just that? I think that one of the great opportunities of public matching funds is you could start to control to a certain extent, how much and in what vehicles people's message gets out there so that actually you could start to see more about different candidates rather than just what ends up floating up because it, it has the support of, you know, Ben Kalos kept talking about how he had 100 unions behind him and that was a year ago. He didn't, you know, it doesn't look like he's in the running, but 
if we really want to feed off of this system and make it truly equitable and empower people to vote for candidates that they believe in, then we're going to have to make some restrictions, I think, on numbers of mailers around how many things go out, both from an environmental standpoint and from how are voters supposed to, I mean, I think you saw any number of those pictures where people had put all over their floor, all the mailers they received. I mean, I didn't want those mailers and I'm a candidate. I was annoyed by them and I was in the same process. And I think the only way that we don't oversaturate people and turn them off and kind of recreate and perpetuate the system of, you know, a few well-off consultants and candidates that the machine supports is by having some controls on the avenues. You know, even, you know, some time ago, journalists got in, you know, we, we got in the, the business of, not the business, but there's an ethics and propriety question around giving equal airtime to different candidates to a certain extent. And I think, uh-huh. you know, broadly speaking, <laughs> journalists really try to support that. When are we going to think about, you know, physical mailers and how that impacts the outcome of a race and, and all of that, particularly when different audiences, particularly by age, particularly by if it's only like pretty regular voters who are end up coming out for any number of reasons, we're not getting a good representation of our city. And that should bother everyone. But as we started with, it doesn't bother everyone. The only people that are really bothered by it are those who spend the time either because they're candidates uh, and trying to you know, change the system or because you end up being frustrated by a lack of movement on the issues you care about. It's almost like we need a system like they have in parts of Europe where it's a, it's yeah. a limited campaign time period. Okay, cool. You get matching yeah. funds, but this is your limited period. And Canada. I mean, Canada does something similar too. Yeah. Got a lot to learn about democracy from other countries. <laughs> we do. We do. And that's the point, right? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, if I could be hopeful and, and I must be hopeful, right? Because I like to challenge the system. I like to challenge the powers that be, and I am eternally optimistic, but we are always going to have a lot to learn. And I think we have a lot to learn at home. So before, you know, every time you see the projections of people like Andrew Cuomo, people like any of our elected leaders looking at some other state, some other place and talking about accessibility and representation. I think it's casting aspersions because they don't want to focus on what's going on at home. And it should be a sign in your mind and our minds that we've got a real problem. I mean, at the end of the day, we got to get rid of these guys, truthfully. (laughs) All politics is local, right? Yes. Yes. That's it. Lindsay Boylan. Hope you're well. Hope you get a little yeah. bit of a break. Hope you get Good. some summer well, rest. You know, and you I got cool. my dog, and <laughs> this is like wait, this is like a this is my post campaign dog. It's actually my daughter's dog, but she's at camp, which is why I'm in a car. So wait, what's his name or her name? Her name, of course. Her name, truffle, like what? the chocolate. Oh my god! I also like the mushroom. She loves <gasps> politics. Oh, she does. Clearly, she's made for TV. Look at her. She's going to be a pundit. Oh my God. 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 Okay. Post campaign dog. Enjoy. Enjoy puppy time. Enjoy daughter time uh, at camp. And I hope you get some, some rest and relaxation. Yeah, thanks for all you do. I'll see you soon. <laughs>